Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome back to the Gains for Girls podcast. Um, I'm super excited about today's guest. Her name is Dr. Linda Blade. Uh, she was an athlete herself, accomplishing incredible things. Um, ACC champion. She's an All-American, um, a Bolivia national champion, and a Canadian national champion. Um, but also, I want her, she's going to dive into all of the progress, or I should say the lack of, that the Olympics has made and how it went from sex verification testing through a cheek swab uh, to now we're in global discord where they're allowing men to self-identify as women to get into women's sports. Um, the progression is is interesting to say the least. Um, all of the different policies and stuff that have been implemented and how we got here. Um, so check out the interview with Dr. Linda Blade. So Dr. Blade, um, you have been someone over the past year and a half, I guess, who has really inspired me. I came to find out later that you were actually at that national championships um, where Thomas and I competed against each other. And so I just want to give you the chance to talk about your background, um, both athletically, um, of course, you're a doctor, um, and kind of the experience and the work you've done sitting on governing boards and creating policies now. Yeah, I have uh, quite a history in sport. You know, I'm, I'm well into my later years of life, I guess, second or third phase of life. Uh, just turned 60 a little while ago and all of this time it's like my life just has been building up to this point where I've had to fight this battle about men self-identifying into women's sports and it, it really started way back when I was a little child my parents were religious were Christian missionaries in Bolivia in South America and they were Bible translators and I happened to just grow up in a place where we had no TV, no electronics. Not, I just played soccer in the streets all the time with the boys. I was a guest of tomboy and a lot of my parents' fellow uh, missionaries didn't really like the fact that I <laughs> was this little girl running around always uh, dirty and playing soccer and coming to church late with sweating because I'd been on the track team and all these things. But I mean, I really loved, loved, loved sports. And then I got to back to Canada and then I immediately was recruited to the NC2A um and uh finished uh well i was on the university of maryland team uh maryland terrapins and this was about exactly almost like 10 years just after title nine and i felt so appreciative of the fact that you know this this little um sweaty ragamuffin little girl with no money got to go and go get a university education and um ended up of course with my phd in kinesiology so i'm a doctor and as far as research but not medical um and so basically but going back to that i mean i was team captain of maryland terrapins and ncaa all american and it was just an amazing experience came back and was trying to train for the olympic team i ended up not getting to the olympics in 1988 um i had an injury devastating injury uh at the time then i was also engaged to be married and i just figured okay i four more years 
my husband was actually doing his agriculture. He's an agriculture. He's a farm boy who grew up and did work with African farmers. And like his PhD was in Africa. So after um, I had national championships and all kinds of things and international, I competed with everybody who was at the Olympics that year. I just didn't get to the Olympics. And, and it was just to that. But I got to compete with Jackie Joyner Kersey. She was in my event, the hip path one. And she still got the world record. And I just feel so like, wow, like it was amazing. I got to compete with her probably on three or four occasions. Of course, didn't come close to beating her. Um, she's an American hero, an amazing athlete. Um, but anyway, so got married, thought I was finished with sport completely. I got a new name, new place to live, living on the edge of the Sahara Desert um, in Africa. And um I thought, okay, well, I've been working on my PhD and I'm going to go to a local university and just say, I help you teach or do whatever, because I was a little bit bored while he was doing his agriculture research. So that was in the area, you know, where Boko Haram is kidnapping the little girls and stuff. And so that was like a center for Islamic studies. And so I went to that university. I just said, look, here I am. I mean, I got a PhD, sports sciences, I can help you. Uh, And they said, well, you have to have an activity you know, course that you teach as along with biomechanics and nutrition, everything else. So I thought, hmm, track and field. So um, I, um, I wrote to World Athletics and said, like, this is who I am. And I'm a Canadian living in Africa and I, I need coaching materials. And they were thrilled to send me some stuff because they had started a new program where coaches coach other coaches um, as a mentorship thing. And so, um, and they were surprised that I was a woman teaching in an Islamic university. In fact, I was the only woman professor. And actually my first welcome to professor, welcome to the university um, celebration was me getting my food and sitting in a different building than the men because it was like I had to do that. And um, so I, I had to really navigate just like different cultures and different religious perspectives and different things. And I was there, and but they were very respectful of me. Um, but then they, the world athletic sent me to like, they, they got me certified and I became like a global lecturer for teaching coaches how to coach. And my expertise was coaching Muslim women, how to coach the girls. And so I, like, I went to Iran and I went to the Middle East, but by that time, my husband, we had moved back to Canada and then I just started having children. And then I coached locally and uh, as a private sport performance consultant and um, coaching athletes in more than 15 different sports because my expertise is human movement studies you know sports sciences and particularly the growth and development like puberty and stuff that was part of my phd in terms of the functionality of how the body goes through and changes over time and function uh and so like i could apply um that with my track and field you know run jump throw even if you're a swimmer pushing off the wall as a jump. So I can actually help people actually improve their performances uh, by taking them off their away from their sport and actually working on specific features of their movement pattern. And so that's how I just made a private consultation. And then by 2014, I was elected as president of track and field in the province of Alberta. And that's when I got to national meetings and found out that they wanted to push a policy, and this was in 2018, they wanted to push a policy where males could self-identify into female sport, into women's sports. And I couldn't believe it. I'm like, no, you're kidding, right? Like, <laughs> this, 
this is not going to work. I'm looking at the words on the paper and it's saying like, no, no surgery required, nor no hormone. Like the one in Canada that they were pushing at the time and still are is like completely self ID. A man can come in one day and say he's a woman and then compete with females. And then the next day can be a man again. Like it was like the most extreme one. And I couldn't, I thought I had fallen into some sort of different universe. Like I just thought, how in the world is this even possible? And it and everything came into view perfectly clear to me when I said to the men around the table, because I'm the one, I'm the president of one province, like one state, and all the other presidents are there around the table at the national capital. And I'm saying, wait, like, you know that records, you know the record books, you know that men's records are way better than women. Like, you know, so you know, why are we doing this? And instead of saying, yeah, yeah, Linda, we get your point, but Jill, there's this law. Instead of saying that, they all just sat quietly and looked down at their hands. And so when you're in a meeting and that happens, something's up. <laughs> and I thought, this is going to be bad. I, this, is, this was 2018. I'm like, this, I don't know where this is coming from. I was, it was completely new to me. But I'm like, nope, this is going to be bad. And obviously, I'm the woman. Very few women at this level. I'm the one that's going to have to say something uh, because they're obviously too afraid. And then when I got the president of the time of the National Track Guild, then I took him for dinner and I just said, you know this is right? Like, what's happening? And um, he basically just kind of, he was humming and hawing. And I said, oh, I get it. So you're worried that... One or two men who want to self-ID, males want to self-ID into women's sports. Um, you're worried they're going to sue us? Is that kind of what this is about? And he goes, I said, but don't you know that there's 50%, like the, the overwhelming number of women and girls are going to be um, feeling like they were discriminated on the basis of sex. And don't you think they're going to sue? Are you worried about that? And he said, girls wouldn't do that. So when he told me that girls would not sue, women would not sue, that, that their worry is about the males, the men, the entitled men, because women would never sue, I thought to myself, boy, you have, you have no idea about female athletes, we're fighters, and like, you have, <laughs> I mean, it turned me into an activist, I'm telling you, Riley, it just turned me into an activist, because I'm like, this, I just... You know, all those years when I was teaching in, in, in Islamic countries and we had to wear the veil and I had to go around and do all these things, I thought, well, this is what it's like over here. But, you know, in the West, we respect women and we, you know, like I just assumed all kinds of things. And then when, when push came to shove, the clarity of it all was just, it hit me like a lightning bolt because... I realize we're no different than anybody. Like when push comes to shove, men will have the priority. Totally, absolutely have the priority. In that defining moment, wow. Um, but it hasn't always been that way. Um, and so I want you to kind of go into the progression, especially in regards to the Olympics. Um, I've yeah. heard you speak on this many times. And of course, you have a book called Unsporting. It's it's awesome. And I'll give you a chance to plug that at the end. But uh, she has it right here. Uh, which is, and it's incredible, all the different details and, and, and different things. But I want you to go into specifically the Olympics. With this being, next, yeah. next year being an Olympic year, 
I, I think a lot of people don't understand where the IOC falls on this, but you and I do, and it's horrible. <laughs> and so I want you to kind of go through the progression um, starting back in, you know, 1960 when, here, you take it away. Are the Yeah, so there was ever since, like, the first time, well, I can speak for track and field, uh, the Olympics, uh, the first Olympics was 1928 that women were allowed in. I think swimming was much earlier, maybe like even 1904 or something. Like it was, w- women could swim much earlier in the Olympics than in track and field. But anyway, so um, ever since, you know, uh, women were starting to compete more and more in the Olympic Games, instantly the International Olympic Committee had a problem where men were self-identifying or pretending to be women or whatever and coming in and competing, trying to compete against the women. And so they realized that may, like right away, there had to be something that they did to for gatekeeping, like to, as a screen, right? Like, like, how do you keep out the males out of women's sports? And so there was different things tried. Like there was about six or seven different methods. I mean, uh, in the 40s and well, 40s was World War II, so they didn't have Olympics then. But right after that, they had, um, you know, they had things where, they would have to be going to a medical exam with a gynecologist. Um, the worst one was in 1960, and it only happened once, but they always go back to this one where it was called the Naked Parade, where the women had to parade before a panel of doctors uh, ma- naked and just to show that they were women. So, and that was horrifying, obviously, and it only happened once, but you know, all of the people who are in favor of don't screen are always pointing to that one moment. But since that, by the 1970s and 80s, they had what we call the cheek swab, which is like you take a Q-tip and you swab the inside of a person's cheek. You get a little bit of the cells from the body and you look under the microscope and women have, like because we have XX chromosomes, in each cell, one of the Xs turns into a little ball kind of thing. And so they call the bar body. So you see this little black dot in the cell and the presence of this black dot tells you, oh, this is a woman. Um, but I mean, sometimes the black dot is not seen visibly, you know, it's not visible under the microscope. And so they think, oh, this might be a man. So then they, you have to go further testing. So really it's just a screen to say, initially, do we see the black dot there? Well, that, that was, there was a few false negatives or yeah, the, the the not like a few females were considered or found to be male, but not really in that screen test. So they decided in 19... 96 Olympics in Atlanta, that they would switch from the cheek swab to doing a blood test and just doing the genetic testing and looking for the SRY gene on the Y chromosome. And um, it took a lot. It took a lot of resources, time, experts. It was expensive. They took a huge number of, uh, they tested a huge number of female athletes, almost everybody. And uh, basically, it you know it did work it did identify a few males in the female group and they let them compete anyway which i just don't get that part uh they were dsd type athletes um with y chromosomes which obviously meant they had male advantage but for some reason the ioc didn't have the guts at that time even though our screen showed us they were male they had the y chromosome we let them compete anyway this was just kind of a test of the system and then that you know they real then there are more and more committees that was like social justice was coming in on board like in universities and stuff and by 1999 um they had a meeting just decided to scrap the j- testing altogether they, and their excuse was that it made 
female athletes feel uncomfortable. But this is not true because in their actual genetics and medicine, they had published the results of a survey they did in, at the Atlanta Olympics when they were doing that um, testing. They did a survey of uh, like many, many female athletes and all of them, like 82, 82% of the athletes thought that they wanted sex verification to continue. And 94% had said it didn't make them feel uncomfortable. So for the, the IOC, on the first lie that this made women feel uncomfortable, on that first premise, it's just started out from the beginning telling a lie that, that women didn't want this. We wanted it. And yet by 1999, they had this special and they just had like some of the guys on an athlete commission kind of think about it. No, yeah, that probably isn't a good idea. And they scrapped the sex verification screen. So that was where we started down this path. And so in 2003, there was another meeting and there was a uh, scientist named Louis Gurin who had done a research on, um, on transsexual or trans, yeah, transsexual. So males who were doing the surgery and transitioning and trying to look like females. And he did the testing like in terms of strength and different things before transition and then tested them after and found that most of the changes happened in the first year of transition, but they didn't mitigate very much at all. Um, but nevertheless, um, he said they, he went to the IOC medical commission and basically said, they all said, based on the best information available at the time, we should allow transsexuals to compete with females. Um, and it was only because they were assuming there weren't that many. They were saying, oh, well, one or two men, we'll let them cheat, you know, in a sense. That's what my words are. But let's let one or two of the transsexuals that had the surgery and did the three years. And I, it, the restrictions were very, you know, severe. Like you had to have uh, two years uh, having had the surgery and lived two years as a woman and, and all the hormonal profiles had to be low and all of this stuff. So it was really restrictive. So basically going to me where they take off testes and then you have zero testosterone. Um, and so basically the best available evidence, well, what, what does like, if they said in that meeting in 2003, so that was, that was called the Stockholm consensus because that was in Stockholm, that meeting. And, and basically what it's it the best available evidence at the time if they were honest with themselves even and with that only one study that dr louis Gurin had done um it was like males they knew males already because of their olympic records and stuff they knew males were stronger and bigger and and taller and larger than women they knew that males outperformed female athletes they knew that um you know even after three years of transition um it didn't take away many of the male advantages, especially in the terms of strength. Uh, maybe hemoglobin levels came down, but I don't even know if they measured that. We found that out later, but everything else, you know, all the, the many variables that make men better than women, not better, but different than women uh, as far as athletes. And then their performances are distinctly different. Um, all of those physical differences are not mitigated, but nevertheless, they let them compete and basically the the statement by Dr. Louis Gurin at the time sums it up. He says, and I'll quote, depending on the levels of arbitrariness one wants to accept, it is justifiable that reassigned males can compete with other women. So he, they were basically admitting it's arbitrary. 
that it's completely political. And it was a bunch of men making this decision. So that was 2003. And then come the moment, the third moment. So the first moment was 1999 saying, we're not going to test. We're not going to verify. We're not going to gatekeep at all. Second moment was 2003 Stockholm consensus where it could be only men, the males who've had the surgery, transsexuals. And the third moment they threw women under the bus or basically disregarded women completely was in 2015, uh, where they suddenly decided, oh, we won't, no, we'll throw away the requirement for surgery. All you have to do is reduce your testosterone. And then we see what happened in 2016 with Laurel Hubbard. Yes. And well, that was actually Laurel Hubbard right away. Yeah, coming came in 2016 and then all the way to the 2021, you know, Olympic Games or 2020 Olympic Games, which happened 2021 because of COVID. And of course, when I went, when I was at the table, going back to that meeting where I said where the men were looking out of their hands, that I was so fuming coming out of that meeting and thinking, oh, I'm going to just write to the IOC and say what they're doing in Canada. And so when I looked at the IOC policy, it was the 2000, the third, you know, thing that I ran into was, oh, wow, a man can self-declare as a woman, um, take one year to have hormones reduced to 10 nanomoles per liter, which is sometimes up to, you know, 20, 10 times higher than any female athlete could ever have uh, legally. Um, and the question that in that moment, the third moment is why? Why did they, why did they um, sort of retract on the surgical requirement? I mean, it, they mentioned being there at all, but why did they do that? Well, I think I have a little bit of an answer. I mean, because it involves a couple of Canadian males. So there is a cyclist named Kristen Worley who wrote a book called Woman Enough. And, um, and he was actually, you know, he was born male and then he transitioned. And so basically uh, had the surgery, I think, in maybe 2004. I can't remember. But anyway, so as as Worley was trying to train for international cycling, uh, I'll say they, just because of Canadian law, but they found out that um, they didn't, they couldn't recover. Worley couldn't recover after training. Um, and so Worley was um, finding it that, that, you know, they'd go on a big bike ride and come back and couldn't train for days because no testosterone. Like, clearly, the male body is designed to need testosterone. You can't function without testosterone. But instead of saying and admitting that, Worley then goes and seeks a tra- um, therapeutic use exemption from the International Cycling. So saying, basically, I need to violate water rules, the doping rules. I need to be able to take testosterone because of my body requires it. And I need to have an exemption so I can take testosterone and stay in the female category. So instead of <laughs> instead of just saying, look, it's not working. I'll just take testosterone and compete as a male, which is you know, the biology that Worley has. No, I want all these exemptions so I can compete as a female. And um, and it's just like crazy. And so basically, Worley took everybody to court. So I, uh, the UCI, the International Cycling uh, 
all the human, like he launched a human rights um, claim in the province of Ontario, but it went all the way up to the IOC. IOC was involved in that case. And um, while they were contending with this transsexual trying to sue them or because they wanted to have the excuse to take testosterone illegally in women's sports, while that was all happening, another Canadian male called Joanna Harper, uh, who was not transsexual, just was identifying as a one um, and was a radiologist, just did a sort of a recreational runner, um, they did a research, like he's looking around on in Facebook. This was the age of Facebook. So around 2007, um, say, well, I need to see like, like, uh, and this Joanna Harper, JH, I'll call this person, JH decided, okay, I identify as a woman. And I noticed that when I reduce my testosterone, my times go down to about the female level. And so we call that in master's running, that's called age grading, where there's a thing called age grading where you compare your results. Let's say you have an 80-year-old competing and a 60-year-old competing. You compare their two results relative to their peers, their same age peers, and then they can compete against each other. Because if the 80-year-old if the does better against their peers than the 60-year-old does against his peers, then the 80-year-old still gets the medal. So basically, it's an age grading thing where masters can compete against each other. And so basically... JH was saying, when I reduce my testosterone, I'm on par on the age grading with female, my fellow females. But the thing is, um, so he didn't, that, you know, there was, they had to have more, more, more subjects to compare. And so JH was asking on Facebook, like, are you transgender? So transgender at that point meant I self-identify as a woman, but not, not with the surgery. Are you a male tra and who ha is transgender? And can you tell me your end runner? And can you tell me your times before transition and after transition? And, you know, so you get an ad hoc group of six, uh, eight, seven others. And then Harper, uh, you know, the person doing the research shouldn't be his own subject, but he included his own results in it. <laughs> and and basically, so JH had his own, the own results in it. And then the the seven other males um and, and self-reported self-reported times but not only that there were sometimes as much as like 20 years between the pre and post so a lot of other things could happen in your life like you could have gotten become a couch potato and your times drop there's a lot of other factors that were not even being controlled for and so the thing is that um joanna harper then did all of this comparing posts, you know, before and after times. And actually one of the runners, runner number seven, um, actually improved and became a better runner after transition by a lot. And because that didn't agree with Harper's desired outcome, Harper called it an outlier and left it out and just did the summary of <laughs> some of me. To show that you're, oh, our times are kind of coming in parallel with the women of our same age category. So basically, this was published in, um, and basically it was published in some sort of a, I don't know, like a, a, a journal. You know those journals where you just pay to get your paper put in? It's just not an official medical, like it's not an official, you know, peer review anything. It's a system where 
they pay, but then you have to peer review others. Like it's just this whole thing. And it was so, um, but even Harper, even in the Harper study, they, the outcome, uh, the conclusion was this only applies to runners, long distance runners. Like they weren't even testing sprinters or jumpers or throwers, only runners. And, and, you know, so, um, you have to be careful, but that that was published in 2014. But then because that was the only study involving transgenders instead of transsexuals, the IOC, the International Olympic Committee, they were having this other lawsuit happening. And now they saw, oh, we can just say reduce testosterone to 10, uh, 10 animals. And that'll solve our problem because that's what, that's what Joanna Harper's study showed. So then Joanna Harper became cause celeb and was put on the IOC Medical Commission to help them decide on the 2015, what would become the 2015 policy. So basically, again, only listening to males who are transitioning, not having any women's voices in there, never consulting with female athletes. And and so, you know, the way I said it in the, the uh, presentation in Denver, um, I said this, and I want to quote myself because this is like, I said, I don't have time to go into the many flaws of this study. You can read about it. There's a website called N equals eight, and it tells you all about how this study was just bogus. But it is enough to say that self-reported data from only eight older male runners should never have been used to change the rules of sport for every female athlete in every Olympic sport in every country around the globe. But it was. So... It's like they just wanted to change. They wanted, they were looking desperately for a solution. And by the way, where does the 10 nanomole per liter come from? That was something, of course, in Gorin's study, but it was something that um, there were two women who are, you know, they, the NCAA policy actually, you know, helped sort of um, inform, I guess, the IOC Medical Commission during the uh, 2010 to 2015, because in 2010, Pat Griffin and Helen Carroll, the two lesbians who were working really hard inside the NC2A committee, had also used that figure, 10 nanomoles per liter, assuming it would be the one that would level the plate, assuming all kinds of assumptions. And they were the ones, because they had felt uncomfortable in the 80s as athletes and as lesbians, and they were you know, afraid to come out of the closet back in those days, they assumed that the transgender situation was the same thing as lesbians had to deal with. But they threw women under the bus. They were two women who gave this number and basically threw the other women under the bus. And even after the Leah Thomas event, what really what really got to me, just as a sort of, I'm, I'm kind of doing a little detour here, and then I'll get back to the IOC. But during the time you had to compete against Leah Thomas, I was waiting for Helen Carroll and Pat Griffin to say, we made a mistake. This is obviously not working. Not one time have they disavowed what they did in the NC2A. And so basically, they, you know, all of these people in this whole realm of female eligibility, they were all, of course, talking to each other. And even the Canadians were talking to Alan Carroll and Pat Griffin. And even Canadians were talking to the IOC and the IOC people on the IOC Medical Commission were talking to all these people. So this number of 10, of course, uh, later it was, you know, seen that like, okay, 10 is actually the lower end of the normal healthy male range, which, you know, but that's keeping men in your focus. It's not, 
has nothing to do with fairness again you know for female athletes and so um so well, whatever be that as it may the ncaa picked 10 animals then the 2015 ioc um consensus came out and said you only have to you know self-id as a man as a woman if you're a man and then live your life as a woman for a year whatever that means what does that mean wear makeup for a year and then keep your testosterone down 10 nanomoles per liter throughout that period of throughout the time you're competing question who checks that who monitors right Ten nanomoles per liter. Like you can actually, and Dr. Emma Hilton has pointed this out, and a number of others. Like, if you leave it up to the trans person to prove that their hormone level, hormonal levels are down, they are booking their own tests. They know the day they're going to be tested. They can take a drug to get their testosterone levels down to castration level for a day or two, and then it pops back up, and they don't have to worry about it for the rest of the month. So. There's no saying that they're staying at that level anyway. Right. Even this as a, unfair as it is to women. This is the same policy back in 2010 that the NCAA implemented. Who was checking? Um, yeah, nobody's checking. So the nobody. of the Olympics now, what does this mm-hmm. look like now? So now, so of course, so after that, all of these things happened and Rachel McCann, the cyclist, became big news because the master cycling suddenly they were allowed to, you know, feed and all these, you know, we saw the Connecticut boys in high school. We saw, we saw you, we saw Leah Thomas meeting, you know, female athletes in the NC2A and we saw how the, the policy didn't work. So 2021, uh, the IOC basically actually, was it 2020? Yeah. So actually Leah Thomas came out just then. So. The IOC came out and basically just said, um, well, it's up to each sport then. They just kicked, they created the problem and then they kicked the can down the road. But they were also saying that if it's up to them, they feel like there should be no surgical, surgical requirement and there should be no athlete should be compelled to take a drug to diminish their hormone levels. It's against their human rights. Well, I kind of agree with that. You shouldn't force anybody to take medication. But there have, then has to be eligibility rules surrounding that. And they were saying then it would be up to the female in the race to prove that the male has a disproportionate competitive advantage. Like, what girl is going to run a race? And then at the end of the race, realized she had just raced against a male. And then in that moment, have all the paperwork to prove to the officials that he has a competitive advantage. Like, in the application of that is ridiculous. And nowhere in the policy does it even define fairness. Like what? No. Even defining that word. You know what I'm saying? So she could have all all of the paperwork and different things presented to the IOC and they could still say, sorry, that that is fair. We're classified that as fair. And if the direction... And we've seen that. That's that's what's going to happen. Well, we've seen what officials did to you. Like, no, no. If they're a tie, let let the the man hold the the um trophy because we need to be virtue signaling and we need the photo op that we're being fair to these people like as if they're some sort of celestial beings that we have to bow to like it's unbelievable they're just human beings that ha- are male who are trying to live their lives as a woman but don't use sport don't use women's sport as your you know social therapy or whatever like it's that's not what sport is for. And I mean, 
that's why. I mean, you know, we've never picked athletes on the basis of their religion. And let's face it, transgenderism, uh, gender identity ideology is a, a kind of religion. It's a belief system. You have to believe that the moment a man says, I'm a woman today, that all the trillions of cells in their bodies suddenly change from XX, from XY to XX. Like that, it's magical thinking. That does not happen. And so it's a belief. It's a belief system. And I would say that we've never, the whole purpose and beauty of sport is that you take your beliefs, you park them on the sideline. You can be Muslim, Hindu, Christian, whatever, Jew. You can race each other with your body and not worry about what somebody believes. And so to have this one singular belief system as sort of this carve out that we need to abide by that religion and then let them compete unfairly is just um, almost just too hard to believe. Like, really, in 2023, is this how stupid we are? Like, I mean, honestly, it's it's beyond belief. So what do you think is the future of the Olympics and really the broader picture of women's sports if we continue to deny this biological reality? Yeah, well... I think the world is waking up, frankly. I mean, with Leah Thomas, thanks to you and thanks to many people speaking up, the truth is coming out that, you know, there's a way to be respectful. And the thing that I I find interesting, I'll just say one more thing, is there's no single human being on the earth today who has come into being other than the union of a male and a female. So clearly sex is still binary. There's no way, there's no middle person that even with intersex there is intersex male and inter- people who are born male have an intersex condition and people born female that have an intersex condition and so basically we can say there are still two sexes whatever you want to have as an identity after that it's up you know up to you as an adult but anyway the whatever you believe right but but basically that means that in the trans umbrella um there are females who identify as male. So there's two kinds of trans. There's females who identify as men and males who identify as women, right? These types of trans stay in women's sports. So we don't, it's not about whether we accept trans or not. The, the vast majority of people who are trans or non-binary, whatever that means, they choose, if they're female born, they choose to stay in female sports. So we're already accepting them. The only question is whether the trans who are over here get to come and discriminate even against the females who are trans. So it's it's not about trans at all. It's about fairness because there are still two of these two kinds of trans. So basically, when we saw what happened in, in uh, 2021 with the IOC, all the women from 10 different countries, we coalesced into this international consortium on female sports. And we are, our job is to represent the female voice because that is a legitimate uh, question. Like, who represents the female voice, really? When you're, you know, 50% of the world's population, and then IOC medical commissioner says, well, we got to get a woman's opinion. What do they do? Walk down the hall and ask their secretary, like, who represents the female voice? And I'm just saying, look, we figured out that there has to be some international body of women that represent that couldn't sit at the table and represent the female voice. So that that started when I saw you at the NC2A convention in Texas in January of this year, 2023. Um, and it was a pleasure and an honor to meet you, Riley. And But basically, we 
with that whole thing we did was basically the launches also of the international consortium because icons is under that umbrella a lot of other groups save women's sport all these other groups are under the same international umbrella that we all agree on sex-based rights and the idea that there has to be one category in sport that female only right that's our basic ask just make sure so we have support from around the world and when the ilc deigns to allow us at the table our representatives can be at the table because now we have a group of women. So that's one of the things going forward is we're going to advocate for female only category in whatever sport comes along and that we can become aware of building a consensus. And actually, even without us, our activism per se, I mean, we've been writing letters behind the scenes, a lot of different organizations, but on it, on their own, of course, world rugby did a, a sensible policy in 2020 um, and now since then, of course, World Swimming has had a policy that's more protective, uh, World Track and Field, World Athletics is World Track and Field. And now I believe is it World Cycling, um, but the four, four big ones that we're looking to get like working on FIFA. Um, there's a woman in France who's a professional soccer player. She just come to my attention um, and um melissa plaza is her name and she is working hard with the french federation on their policies but she's also will probably going to be very effective and working on the soccer fifa and there's um we're looking at triathlon i mean think about it world triathlon is the next obvious i mean you have world swimming world track and field and world cycling the three sports involved in triathlon have all done by the female protective category but world triathlon hasn't done it yet i mean like <laughs> it's home it's pretty uh, uh ironic yeah tide is turning though i totally agree with yes earlier um i think people are starting to wake up i think these governing bodies more as more and more women are affected and more and more women are, are willing and able to speak out um they're ultimately going to change their minds um i'm hopeful yeah. that we're seeing that happen um, I think, of course, there's a lot of work to continue being done um, that I know we have linked arms to to continue fighting uh, along with a slew of other women um, under this umbrella yeah. of ICFS, um, which is really great news. Um, and again, I just appreciate you and your activism. I love that you called yourself an activist because I think people are hesitant to use that word um, to call themselves an activist, but you most certainly are, and I most certainly am. Um, and so- yes. I Thank you for your your activism work. Thank you, Riley. I appreciate it. I'm I'm really happy to be able to tell you. I think it is a positive story, even though it's heartbreaking. All of these things and and the ways in which uh, the IOC undermined female athletes, but I think we can help them get back on track by being strong and speaking out the way we have been. And especially you, you've been just amazing and uh, young and and totally totally legit. So. Thank you so much for all you've done for female and sport, for women in sport. It's just been fantastic. And little girls. I mean, we can't forget our little girls, too. And, oh, by the way, Roanoke College, I mean, that was amazing what you did there. And I have a my, one of my coaches from Maryland, from the NCAA, just wrote me last night, said, if you ever talk to Riley, tell her, even the girls I'm coaching in Maryland, love her. Oh, so, Tim, Timothy Moore, I did it. I told, I called you out, man. <laughs> That's so sweet. Um, but you're exactly yeah. right. That's why that's why it matters. Um, it's not for yeah. I, or I because 
well, I can't speak for you, but I'm certainly done competing. So it's not about me. It's not about any competition that, that I choose to. And it's not about that. It's about the young girls. So, yeah. And we had our turn, right? We had our turn. Like the whole point is we want, it's been like Title IX has been the most amazing thing. It's been so amazing. Like think of all the soccer moms that are now that carting their kids around to competitions because they had such a good experience in sport. I mean, it's actually foundational to our culture and to destroy it is just to destroy so many good things that happen. So thank you. Like it's, it, you can't, you just can't express, I can't express how important it's been to have you in this fight as well. So thank you so much. Thanks for joining the Gains for Girls podcast this week. Um, make sure to like, subscribe anywhere where you get your podcasts. You can check it out at outkick.com. Uh, and we look forward to seeing you guys again next week.